Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hi, I'm Aaron Lammer. This is the Long Form Podcast. We are off this week for Thanksgiving, so we're running a interview I did earlier this year with Hanif Abdurraqib. He's a critic, essayist, poet, and I really enjoyed talking to him. The conversation has stuck with me, so here it is. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week. I've got here Hanif Abdurraqib. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. I really appreciate being here. I just finished uh, your most recent essay collection, A Little Devil in America, which is largely about performance. But I, I noticed while I was reading it how much of the book is not about the performer, but the audience for said performances. So I thought a place to start might be to talk about how you think about the audience for your essays. Oh, I I don't. Uh, I think that I'm a better writer when I don't consider outside audience and instead consider myself as a willing audience member uh, kind of in the front row for my own obsessions. And um, there's a more even generosity there for myself because you know if i if i spend any time thinking about audience or who's reading my work or why they might be reading my work that's almost a hindrance to me and whatever mission i'm pursuing as a writer but if i consider myself as kind of a vessel for my own obsessions and an excited and willing audience member at the concert of my own obsessions uh, then i i think i serve both myself and the writing more evenly um, because that is something that I can steer. Myself as audience is something I have a little bit more control over. And, you know, one thing that I've really made peace with and had to have made peace with early on is that, you know, once your work enters the world, like once you decide that your work is going to enter the world, um, it's no longer yours. And you cannot control people's reactions to it or people's projections onto it. And so, you know, there's some ways that I've had to, to surrender my feelings and thoughts around audience. So if you think of yourself as the uh, hypothetical audience for your own work, I would think that that takes a sensitivity when you are reading other people's work. When you're reading, are you sort of thinking about the relationship between something you're reading to your own work, things that you'd like to do on your side there? Yeah. Well, I, I often think about reading other people's work as a real opportunity to 
learn. You know, I don't have a uh, quote unquote traditional education in writing. I didn't go to school for it. I didn't study it at all. I was bad at school anyway, you know, these kind of things. And so I, I am in many ways like self-taught, which simply means that I, I've read a lot. Um, and so my sensibilities, you know, my my taste varies, but my sensibilities are all still very much wrapped up in that of a student, perhaps. Like, what can I learn from this experience that I'm having? Or what is happening in this book that I can perhaps borrow from? I'm a big borrower, you know? I, I, and not, not in a standpoint of, like, plagiarism. You know, I'm not, like, mapping whole sentences out onto my own work. But in terms of tricks that I pick up in other people's writing, you know, small tricks of confession or tricks of perhaps shifting the perspective of the speaker or including the reader in a kind of uh, a, a choir, uh, a call and response, even though I cannot adequately get the response, you know, these kind of things. You know, when I'm reading other people's work, I am asking myself the question of, well, what can I borrow? What can be lent to my own creative practice, which doesn't mean that I'm only reading work for that. You know, like everyone else, I read, I read work for a, a series of excitements and uh, rich storytelling and all these things, but uh, my brain is still kind of that of a eternal student. So um, you said that you, you were not traditionally uh, uh, trained as a writer. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your life and what was going down during the time period. Um, when you would have been getting educated as a writer and uh, you know, what, what you were thinking you would pursue during those um, poor school years. I mean, it has to be said, I did grow up in a house where reading was uh, immensely important. And so I did read a lot, you know, and when I was a kid, a library was built at the top of my street on the East side of Columbus, the Livingston branch of the Columbus library. And that was like, life-changing for me because though reading was an important priority in my household, we just didn't have a lot of books. You know, I didn't grow up in a household that had access to a lot of books, but to have a library was like, I, I almost couldn't believe it. It was my first experience in a place like that. And I couldn't believe it because I was like, oh, I could just sit up here all day and read and no one's going to bother me, you know, like no one's going to kick me out. So that kind of opened up a whole new thing for me because I was, you know, always just trying to stay out of trouble and to have this library allowed me to kind of sink into a world of books I didn't have before. So I was an avid reader, but I didn't think about myself as a writer in part because I was not exposed to beyond my house. Uh, I wasn't exposed to a lot of reading that interested me until I was like deep in my high school career. I just started going to the library again for uh, probably the first time in, in more than 20 years because uh, I have a daughter who's of library age. And it really exposed me to the pleasure of treating books um, like late night cable. Like I've been taking books that interested me and, and not having that experience where you have to decide whether to buy it or not, which then right. leads to a secondary decision of like, well, now I've bought it. Am I going to read it in its entirety? Maybe I don't want to do that because I'm not sure I want to commit to it. And uh, there's something very nice about having one free hour at a library and, and doing some like 15 minute drop ins on books. Also for me, 
I, I went through this yesterday or maybe last week because time is, is interesting in doing this thing now where like, for me, at least the months feel short, but the days feel long. Um, so when I say something happened like either yesterday or last week, it's cause I truly don't remember which it is, but I was, um, you know, I was looking up, it was Lou Reed's birthday and I was in my library of books at home looking for um, my copy of Lester Bangs, the Lester Bangs collected the psychotic reactions and carburetor dung to get the notorious series of interviews he did with Lou Reed out of that book. And I realized, you know, this is a book that I've had for years because I stole it from the library. Um, it still has the, the Columbus Metropolitan Library sticker on it on the back. And I've had it, you know, there was a point where, um, where I was facing like housing insecurity or I was unhoused in Columbus. And naturally I would spend a lot of time in the library, uh, the main library downtown. And mostly what I would do was I would just pick up a book on like a Monday and I would just, that would be my book for the week. And I would come into the library and read it throughout the week and then go get what little bit of food I could and then go back and read that book until the library closed and reread it sometimes. And the Bangs book was one of those books for me. And I loved it so much that one day I just straight up took it <laughs> and and that book has traveled with me forever, you know? So there's a way too that um, the library has acted as kind of like a life-saving device for me. And, and I, and I owe a great deal to it always. Tell me about your relationship to Columbus. Uh, it's obviously a place that you write a lot about um, not just in the sense of, Hey, this is where I'm from, but in the sense of really a lot of very specific details. Like I, I feel like I know uh, uh, more about Columbus than um, most uh, Midwestern cities uh, after reading a bunch of your work. Uh, what role has it had played in your writing? Well, I'm glad you said that, honestly. It means a lot. And I think particularly because the goal of my work, I think, initially from my very first book, which to be clear, I only ever wanted to write one book. I only ever wanted to write the one poetry book, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, which came out in 2016. Um, and that was it. That's all I expected, you know, at the time and maybe all I really wanted for myself. But the goal with that book and with subsequent work was always kind of like um, to be very clear in understanding and in the reality of um, my understanding that Columbus could be any city. Um, now, obviously there are some immensely unique things, some things that are entirely unique to Columbus, but I would, I think I can build a world where readers understand it to be a city that is touchable to them. And, you know, that, that feels like a unique blessing that feels like a real fortune that I, that I have, you know, I, I also think about place as a privilege. And I say that not just, um, to be from a place because many people are from a place, but many people uh, have had such transient lives or such lives that where, where trauma informs their relationship with a place that they are, you know, they don't feel the relationship that I feel with Columbus with the places they were born or the places they grew up in. And my relationship with Columbus is complicated in that I often uh, particularly as I get older, I think, feel some level of rage with how this city treats 
its residents, its most marginalized residents, sure, but also in, in the ways that it treats the people who have lived here, uh, the people who have built lives that they love here. This is a city that I think is consistently, through its actions, telling those people that this place they love is not enough and that something else must be reached for and achieved through the reformatting of a city that that actually does not know the people it's catering towards. Doesn't know if it wants to be a tech city or a food city or, or and in this pursuit, in this kind of endless pursuit, um, there are people who are left behind. Now, all that said, my affection for Columbus is still outweighed by my complications. And I hope that stays true for a little bit longer. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of like my, my real goal in my writing is to not write the city only as romantic, but to also write it as a flawed place that, that, I, that I struggle to love and figure out how to love through those struggles regardless. When I read your uh, two essay collections and other work of yours I've come across, these tiny biographical details will creep in in one place and then get referenced in another place. Or you'll talk about being from the east side of Columbus. Yes. And then in one piece, you'll sort of explain what that means, what some specific grocery store means, and then that will pop up in a different work. And it struck me that those references would, would come across differently depending on whether you had sort of uh, seen the previous episode of the TV show that also referenced this thing. Um, do you feel like you're building sort of a, an aesthetic universe there? Oh, I, I fully believe that I both want to write books that can be read and enjoyed individually, but I'm also a big rabbit hole person. I'm a big Easter egg person. I love feeling like I am immersed in a very intentional universe. And I appreciate you use the word universe because I, I am also writing for people to read my work as a full body of work and say, oh shit, I remember that from that other book. I remember that from that other essay. You know what I mean? Like I remember this grocery store. I remember this story. There's a kind of um, pleasure in being in on something on having access to the fullness of a world that exists beyond just one book. You know, I'm working, I'm currently in the midst of working on like my, my latest book right now. Like literally I'm in the, I'm in the mode, like right after I wrote like a thousand words. My, my goal um, when I'm in book writing mode is, is um, 2,500 words a day, four days a week for a few months. And so this morning I got to, to 1,500 and after, after we finished talking, I got to find a way to get, 1000 more. Of course, this isn't, you know, this isn't really rigid. Anyone who knows me knows that like, if the shit ain't working, then I, I hang it up. You know what I mean? So maybe after we finish, I'll, I'll step outside and be like, man, it's 70 degrees and sunny. So, you know, a little 1000 words can wait till next week or whatever. Um, but I find myself calling back, joyfully calling back to touchstones that have lived in past books and doing it happily. I was so nervous about doing that early on. You know, I was so nervous about like this kind of shame that might exist in repetition and repeating myself or asking people to 
take a walk with me that they've already taken. But that is, I think, the beauty of the work rests in taking the walk that we've already taken, right? Because I get to say, you remember that tree? You remember how it looked back then? It's even better now. I can make it look even better now if you just give me a chance. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. What is it like building that world as you age? Uh, probably the most common thing that's referenced in that world, um, I would say, is your uh, youth and uh, a lot of times your college years. Um, as uh, the car that you're in drives uh, away from that uh, in linear time, what does the universe look like uh, as it gets smaller and smaller in the distance? In some ways, I think it becomes a better and more joyful project to archive, the project of my living, of course. Here's the thing. I think um, I believe memory is a privilege. And again, much like if I'm talking about place as privilege, I believe memory is privilege, not just not just having a relationship with memory that is healthy, by that I mean, you know, you can remember things well as you age, but also having a relationship with memory that is not wholly traumatic. That is also a privilege. One that um, I don't believe in taking it for granted. Like I believe in talking about and acknowledging and joyfully being clear about memory as privilege because it allows for me, it allows for a real honesty for me in understanding that like, I might not always have access to the language or imagery or the tools I have access to, to put myself and others in touch with my past and my living. And so as I pull further away from those memories, in some ways I cling to that which is most fluorescent, right? Which doesn't mean that there aren't some granular retellings of things in, in these uh, recollections, but I also think that not only do I cling to that which is most fluorescent, but I I get to be a little bit more honest about my failures and my complicity in how I failed others because I'm less indignant about my past and I'm less beholden to this pursuit of nostalgia 
that does not necessarily always represent the full self or the full experience that I that I had. And so in some ways I become more honest as I age away from those memories because then I'm not just in the pursuit of of memory for memory's sake, right? I'm I'm telling myself that the the unearthing, the repeated unearthing of memory has to be doing some better work than me just kind of being like, hey, remember that thing? You know? Um, which don't get me wrong, you know, I'm definitely not opposed to a hey, remember that thing moment. But I think when I'm committing it very seriously to the page, I have to ask more of myself than that. And I, I think, you know, aging away from my memories has been a real experience in accountability. I, you know, I hope to keep walking that path. Yeah, I had some of those thoughts while I was um, reading your book uh, about Tribe Called Quest, where I was really excited to read it. And then I was like, would I pretty much like to read a book about any tape that I owned in high school? Like, why why can I not have this uh, intensity of feeling about something that isn't like nostalgic in my own past? Um how do you think about that stuff? Like why write a book about a uh, tribe called Quest rather than music that you're enthusiastic about from the last decade, say? Well, because I wholly believe that I believe in the formative roots of sound and of song and tribe called Quest was immensely formative to me if for no there are many reasons but if for no other reason it is because that was the first rap group that my parents found acceptable to have in the house you know which means it was the first rap group that I could play openly and freely for a while back when my parents were a little more strict about you know like what rap what rap made it in the house and what rap was you know forbidden in the home and so I I wholly believe in the formative nature and in, in acknowledging the formative nature of sound and song, because I could easily write about, I mean, and I do write about music in the present, the contemporary music, but my experience as a listener and as a lover of music has formative roots in, uh, you know, I am very interested in honoring the history and formative nature of those roots with a kind of exuberance and ecstasy that it deserves. Yeah, it's so interesting. I like to listen to Hot 97 when I'm in in, in the city and um you know the the rotation of, you know, the the Funkmaster Flex uh show has got to be more than 20 years on at least on and off on Hot 97 and there's sort of something interesting when people who have those sort of formative roots in music then don't necessarily want to give up their chair and they sort of grow into a, a, a tree based on, on their own experience. Whereas, you know, they were getting into it as a, a young man uh, with a blank slate. And I guess as like people sort of stay relevant in culture for longer and longer, which is kind of a, a natural effect of the internet, maybe it's interesting to perceive everyone's entry point. I guess this is just old head talk. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so important for me, though, to find my way towards loving music in the present and loving contemporary music and 
remaining curious about what is coming out and what people are excited about. People adjacent to me in age, people younger than me. I spent a lot of time in Columbus in high schools and around young folks, um, you know, mentoring and writing and all these things. And we talk about music all the time. And when I was young, it was, I'm trying to think of a way to say this without feeling like I'm not throwing folks under the bus because there's, there was such a real generosity extended to me by older folks, not just my older siblings, you know, who shared headphones and shared cassettes and all this, but also like older heads on my block who I grew up with, who would kind of tell me what they were listening to and put me on to things. But I found that when I gained my own autonomy with listening, when I found my way to things that excited me and they didn't always align with the things that were exciting the older music listeners in my life, I was so frequently dismissed, you know, or it was suggested that like what I was listening to wasn't worthy or worthwhile. And I felt kind of bummed out, you know, because whether I wanted to admit it back then or not, I wanted my music to impress those folks. I wanted my music to impress the people who I thought were cooler than me. And, uh, I say all this to say that I don't think anyone thinks I'm cooler than them now, but I never want to be a person who makes anyone feel like the music they like is unimportant or small. This doesn't mean I have to like all of it, but it means that I want to approach it with curiosity and, and excitement because I want to be in awe of music always. I want to feel the way that I felt the first time I heard a tribe record or the first time I, you know, I'll never forget when I when I first heard De La Soul Stakes is High album, you know? I want to feel that way again. I want to feel that way all the time. And so because of that, I, I need to kind of reject the old head impulse to kind of be like, well, this isn't like what I would fuck with or this isn't what I was fucking with when I was your age or whatever else. Um, and instead maybe ask some better and more curious questions about um, what I'm actually looking to be moved by and if there is anything that can get me there. I want to ask you about a topic that I know almost nothing about, which is uh, writing and publishing poetry. Uh, (laughs) So some of the moments in your essays, particularly where you will um, often be deep in a historical rabbit hole, and then there will be a hard cut to a very personal anecdote from your own life with without a lot of like transition time between the two of them. And that strikes me as a, a poetic device. What do those moments achieve for you? And what other parts of poetry do you feel like you bring into your approach to essay writing? Well, I mean, I think those moments in particular are just me paying homage to the ability to write as I would speak, right? I don't know any other way to write than to write as as though I'm actually telling the story as I would tell it if you were in front of me. I come from a storytelling people, you know? Like I, I come from um, people who are immersed in and, and rich within the, the oral tradition. My father tells stories and um, a lot of them are the same story, but he knows how to tell them differently, right? How to not only add maybe a sentence here or there, but to add 
a level of flair, a vocal performance to enhance what maybe isn't there in, in the raw narrative, you know? Um, and so more than a poetic device, I think that is a, an ancestral device of growing up kind of steeped in the oral tradition and knowing that sometimes it is actually about how you deliver the information and not about the information itself. And I, I feel myself most pulled towards these kind of flourishes when I do realize that I am deep in the, the historical rabbit hole and I can feel like, okay, maybe someone reading this might be starting to nod off right at this moment. What can I offer them that's better than just this, right? What can I offer them that maybe for a second takes us outside of this and, and takes us to an elsewhere? Maybe not a better elsewhere, but an elsewhere nonetheless. And I learned that from, from hearing my elders tell stories. There's an inherent knowing of yourself as vessel for narration uh, who also has to, is like required to hold the attention of others at all costs. And um, that is essentially what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm the, the project, the broader project of my writing is almost a constant pleading of don't leave yet. Stay here with me for just a little bit longer. When you sit down and you've got that 2,500 words in front of you, what influences your decision-making process? Is like one day a personal day and then another day you're deeper in the research and sort of uh, writing from something historical? How do you split up the tasks necessary to put together one of these essays? Oh, I don't ever think about it like that. I don't, I don't ever think about it as a splitting up of a task. And I definitely don't think about it in the sense of is today the day I get personal and day, is today the day I get historical? I'm a big believer in the fact that research unveils excitements that that are kind of just waiting for me to to play with them. You know, like research is is the playground for me always. And um, I'm always writing from the place of what don't I know is question number one. And then question number two is, what did I just find out? And question number three is, how can I make that exciting to someone other than myself? And that's kind of always where I'm at, you know. Um, and I, I'm very big on kind of just jumping and seeing what catches me. Because a lot of times I sit down to write, I am not sitting down with anything in mind except for I found this cool thing and I want to explain it to you taking on the role of an evangelist beyond being a simply an essayist has been important for me because I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking through the argument that I'm going to make. And instead I realize that I spend a significant amount of time thinking about how to properly find the language to ascribe beauty to something I've witnessed. Right. If I believe that the essay has perhaps already been written, through this thing that has already existed, this kind of, this beauty that I'm holding in my hand is the essay. And yet you cannot see what is in my hand. How can I bring you close enough? And how can I find the adequate language to describe to you what I am holding, even though you can't see it? What can I do to describe it in a way that makes you want to see it, right? These are the kind of things that I find myself tasked with uh, when I sit down mostly. and. Um, Sometimes that involves a detour into the personal, but only 
if there's space, only if there's space to allow for it. Because what I'm actually trying to do is get you to say, damn, I wish I could hold that. I wish I could see that. I want to find that for myself. So earlier in this interview, you alluded to a period of your life uh, where you were experiencing housing insecurity. Um, You are now, I would say, one of the most critically acclaimed essayists working in America. Um, Take me through like how you went from only wanting to publish one book to publishing a bunch of books and what this whole journey has been like for you. Well, it's funny, you know, like I, um, (laughs) because I had a criminal record as well, you know, like I was in and out of the, 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 the jail system here in Columbus, it was hard for me to find work a lot. You know, it was a challenge to find work. And around 2000 in like 12, uh, 13-ish, I found like a job. I'm I'm doing air quotes here that no one can see, but a capital G, quote unquote, good job, Um, you know, like benefits and all that. And and that that was a real challenge for me because I had a record and no one was taking me. And so, you know, at that point is when I'd also kind of stumbled into poetry and I begun performing poetry. You know, I came up in Poetry Slam and um, I had entered a chapbook competition um, with Button Poetry. And, I, you know, they had asked me to. I had, I had begun to kind of have some um, some success in the realm of performing my poetry and people had, had taken a liking to some of my poems. And so Button was kind of like, hey, you know, we got this chapbook competition and we like your work. Uh, you should submit to it. And I said, uh, all right. I got like, at the time I was like, I got like maybe 12 good poems that I believe could fit in the chapbook. And chapbooks are generally a little bit more than 12 poems, but I just sent in my little 12 poems, you know? Um, and I came in second. Uh, I, I technically lost. Uh, I was a finalist, but came in second to Danez Smith um, in their book, Black Movie, which is stunning. And Button, this was 2014, 2015. Button was kind of like, you know, a big part of the reason that your book didn't make it was because um, the judges all kind of thought that, you know, this could be a full length book if you wanted to make it one. And I was like, okay, you know, I feel like I won maybe. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that that is kind of how The Crown Ain't Worth Much, my first book came. But because I, I had, for the first time in my adult life, I had a secure job and I had, you know, a secure place to live and I had secure salary that was steady. I was like, I can work on this book while I work at my job. I can do a short little book tour while I work at my job. And that's it, you know, and I'll just beyond that, I'll write for fun. And that's the plan. But after that book came out, and, and to be fair, the Crown Ain't Worth Much had a bigger response than I think um everyone anticipated. And so that was surprising for me. An enduring memory of The Crown Ain't Worth Much was I did a New York book release and it was like sold out beyond belief. Like people in the hallway of this room, we had to move up to the roof because there were so many people that I ended up reading in the roof. And then afterwards I was selling my own book, you know, like there was, this wasn't a thing that was fancy enough to have like booksellers. I was selling my own book and I was selling it out of my trunk and people were lined up like around the block to get the book. And I remember like the cops rolled up and was like, fuck is going on here? You know? Um, and that is kind of when I was like, Oh, wait a minute. This is, 
you know, this is maybe different than I expected. And that's kind of, um, you know, $2 radio then reached out about writing an essay book. And I said, no, you know, I said no the first couple of times. Cause I was like, you know, I, I wrote the one book I want to write. I'm not an essayist in this way, but eventually I relented and, and wrote, they can't kill us till they kill us. And, um, you know, needless to say that, that definitely had a life that, uh, went well beyond, again, well beyond what anyone expected for it. And um, I think that is kind of the turning point, you know, like They Can't Kill Us came out um, in a year where I like kind of, I quit my job, you know, it was kind of just like hoping for the best. And that book had a moment that I I did not expect. That book, which is almost five years old now, which feels really kind of absurd. Um, But yeah, that, that book had a life, real life to it. That moment when you quit the job um, in that first uh, essay book cycle, did your relationship to writing change when it became your job on some level? Not really, because I was too scared. I was too scared at first. I didn't quit my job. So a wild thing is, so I was working at MTV News during that like really great era of the MTV News revival. And I owe all this to Jessica Hopper. Um, you know, Jessica Hopper took a chance on me at the time. And this also was in 2016, where she was like, you know, we're building something at MTV News. And we think we could, you know, you should join this team. Now, this team was built with like established folks at that time, folks who were like established online journalists and print journalists, folks who had had larger bodies of work than I did. And Hopper was kind of just like, I like these couple things you wrote you know, join up and and we'll give you a column. You'll write once a week. And I get like now what she was doing was essentially giving me a platform to build a body of work that I could take elsewhere, that I could do other things with. And um, that was a real incubator for me. You know, I was every week, it wasn't competitive in that, in the traditional sense, but like, you know, Doreen was it. Doreen St. Felix and Ira Madison and Molly Lambert and Carvel Wallace and so on and so on and so on. And so like every week, if I was publishing on a Wednesday and Doreen had something to come out on a Tuesday, I'd be reading that shit and, and I'd be like, okay, I got I to gotta get back in the lab and do some edits because my shit is like not up to par with this. And that was a really important point for me. So I say all that to say, I was working MTV News while I was still working my nine to five, but I was saving like every penny I earned from MTV News because I was like, I can't quit my job. This is, I think, something that growing up poor perhaps has uh, <laughs> has embedded in me, for better or worse. I think perhaps for better. But I was like, I can't quit my job until I can afford to pay my rent for an entire like seven or eight months, just in case shit goes bad. And I got to like look for a job. I got to be like so secure that I can pay my rent for like eight months. I, and I was still scared in those initial those initial months. I was still like, I didn't really have a chance to revel in my life as a full-time writer because especially because at that point, right after I quit my nine to five job, MTV news fired all of us. Right. So it was like, Oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, yeah, I mean, of course I fell into some good fortune. um, And and I think, you know, with gratitude towards Jessica Hopper and MTV news, like I built a body of work that people trusted and relied on. And and that kind of got me, enough gigs to stay afloat until the next part of the bridge emerged for me to walk across. You wrote a few profiles for um, Bleacher Report. I remember one about uh, Mo Salah. Yeah. What, what was it like 
you know, stepping into a more traditional form with kind of more preset uh, uh, formatting uh, expected, uh, like writing a sports profile coming from your experience going poetry essays uh, on? Well, that was a challenge, especially because Bleacher Report, you know, I think they were probably a little like freaked out when they got the draft of that, which was like that Mosala piece, which is is utilizing like a poetic form to tell that story, right? It's kind of like playing with the sonic crown a little bit. And I know they got that draft. And they're like, man, what what the fuck is this? You know, profiling an athlete's tough because um, athletes don't really have anything to sell but themselves. You know, they're not like musicians where it's like you're profiling them because there's an album coming out or you're profiling the actor because there's a series coming out. Yeah, the World Cup was coming at was coming when I profiled Mosala, but still the profile itself was just an exercise in like, here is this guy who might lead Egypt out of their group, but maybe not really, you know, um, because the most interesting stuff, and I say this with like all respect to Mosala, of course, but the most interesting stuff that came through the reporting of that piece was going to the village he was from, like going to Egypt, going to the village he was from and seeing all the young people there so enthusiastic about him still, you know, wearing old, old jerseys of his and, Everyone there was his cousin, that kind of thing, you know? And I was like, how can I bring people to this place? Oftentimes, I'm interested in the atmosphere or the environment that surrounds the subject and not the subject themselves. And I think perhaps I learned that because my first big profile was a Mosala profile where it's like, sure, he is interesting, but the story is actually in this village in Egypt where he is so beloved. That's where the story is. When you're in a situation like that, and in some ways that experience of the people being enthusiastic, that's sort of the evangelist, uh, the thing that's in your hand that you're trying to show the reader. Um, When you're dealing not with your own experiences, but this external experience you've had, I'm curious what your sort of strategy for bringing that to life? Are, are you like a big note taker of your experience there? How do you try to capture something like that when you're um, not in your name? How do I try to beautifully capture my own history? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the central thing I ask myself is I'm beholden to telling a, a beautiful story, but I also want to tell a, a responsible story. And so when, when, when I am at stake or when the subject is my life and that's at stake, then that question becomes more pertinent where it's like what I remember may not be what someone else remembers, which doesn't strip me of my autonomy to tell a story, even to tell a beautiful story. But it is again, like, how do I do this responsibly? Whereas when it's something that I know I've witnessed, when I have footage, when I have tape or photos or notes, um, from something that I know I was present for in a very tactile way um, and that I'm not pulling where I'm not pulling from memory, uh, that's a bit easier, right? But I I like to think of myself as a somewhat unreliable narrator of my own experience um, where what I'm actually telling people is, here's what I want to believe happened. Here's what I almost need to believe happened. But you'll forgive me if it maybe didn't go this way as much as I want it to. I'm telling you the story of what I wish 
and maybe it is not always a story of what was. And, um, you know, that's a hard thing to make peace with, but that is also, again, speaking to the fact that memory is not infallible and we have to do the best we can with the, the, the nature of our failing minds. You alluded to the uh, 1,000 words that you still have to write today. Yeah. And you alluded to this larger project, which is a universe. And I'm wondering where you go from here and, and how much of that universe, which has not been sketched out, there is still in your mind. How much of the uh, uh, Zelda map uh, is still not lit up? Sorry, I've been playing a lot of role play games, so that's my primary metaphor. <laughs> it's funny. I'm I'm playing um I'm replaying Red Dead Redemption for like the f- third time. And it's at that point where like portions of the map that because I have played the game before, portions of the map where it's like I know what rests beyond the, the fog, you know, I still can't touch it. But I I I know, I vaguely recall what rests beyond the kind of clouds of that untouchability, if you will. And that's actually much the experience of my writing where it's like, I know what's there kind of, I can't see it. It doesn't, it's not fully formed. It's like, um, it's like in a dream, you know, where you can't really read in your dreams or you can, but it's, it's, you know, you strain to read and the language is cloudy. Um, but you're close, you know, you're close to something. I I think that is maybe um, where I find myself right now. And uh, in the writing phase that I'm in, you know, in the early phases of the new book, where it's like the map is going to reveal itself, the more I write. And I just have to trust that, like, I have to trust that there is a map that will show itself to me, the more attention I pay to what the story is, is, is telling me. And that that's, you know, not always the case. And sometimes I am kind of just like wandering around the familiar land and afraid to go any further. But there's a type of fearlessness, I think, that I, I feel when I'm in the early stages of a book where I'm at now, you know, where it's like I can I can make this anything I want in a draft phase. The I, You know, the draft, I don't want to get into a whole thing, but I, <laughs> I it feels like for me the draft phase has always been where writers get to be fearless and not tentative. And I feel like so often there's a tentativeness attached to what happens in the draft phase. But for me, it's like, I get to be unafraid here. I get to make mistakes. I get to stumble my way towards something. I get to seek out one good sentence in a fog of 10 bad sentences. You know, I get to do that. And there's a real pleasure in that. There's a real pleasure in unearthing, you know, digging into the mud of language and unearthing a bad, a, a good sentence. Um, there's sometimes real pleasure in unearthing a bad sentence. You know, there's a pleasure in the journey of finding the sentences that don't work um, so that you can stitch together the ones that do. I am so unafraid. I'm my most unafraid self when I get to revel in the draft phase and get to slowly uncover those maps. And so that's where I'm at now. And that is also where I'm at in, in, uh, in Red Dead Redemption, where I'm kind <laughs> of just like making my way towards making my way towards the lands that I'm kind of familiar with, but only vaguely remember. 
Um, but that act of that act of remembering is is really sweet when it arrives. When I was playing Breath of the Wild, oh yeah, I was constantly sort of thinking about like, I'm like, is this 10% or is this 50% or is this 1% of the overall map? Right. And that's a really exciting feeling right now. The uh, Elden Rings is big. And when I look at just like reading a few reviews of it, to me, that's like uh, Ulysses. It's a, it's a book that I know I will never finish. I, uh, I, I, I've, I've already uh, allowed myself the grace to realize I will never beat or even probably like expose most of the map of that game yeah there's a real pleasure to that too though i think there's for me there's real pleasure to like giving into like at some point i'm just riding around a world and that is the game which in in games like red Dead redemption's Elden ring like there's some real things uncovered through just the presence of floating through <laughs> the world that exists in the map will reveal itself when it does, you know, what I'm saying is if you're a writer, maybe play more video games and some answers will arrive to you. Cause I can't, I can't help but say that uh, so much of my writing practice is based off of the things I've learned <laughs> stuck in video game worlds. I'm already uh, enjoying the, that the bottom of the show notes of this episode is just going to be like red dead redemption, breath of the wild and Elden rings. Yeah. It's a perfect place to go out on. So um, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks for this podcast. I really love it and learn a lot from it. That was the long form podcast. Uh, Thanks to Seth Kelly for editing this episode. Thanks to our intern, Susan Peterson. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. And of course, thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We'll be back next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.